Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham, coming at you today nearly live. We are in Boston, Massachusetts. We have crossed over the Charles River from Cambridge, yet we are still on Harvard campus area. We're at the Longwood area, which is where all of the doctors and nurses and medical folks are, are located because there's a bunch of hospitals around here. But we also have the public health program, which is here, and we are fortunate enough to have Alicia Yeaman, a lecturer on law and global health, the director of the JD MPH program, and is also the policy director here at the Francois Xavier Bengu Center. That's a lot of titles. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Sean. So we are here today to talk about the new book, just out, still hot off the press. It's a, a 2016 release entitled Power, Suffering, and the Struggle for Dignity, Human Rights Frameworks for Health and Why They Matter. You've written a lot about public health and the idea of human rights associated with health. So I'm just wondering, this particular book, uh, what was the push to publish this? This book brings together a lot of personal experiences over my lifetime. It's not a traditional academic book. It's it's filled with sort of more ethnographic accounts and stories of individual people. I think that the impetus was, one, what's going on in global health, where there are really two stories. One is a very positive, optimistic story about immense progress we've made in combating some major public health scourges and in, you know, I think being on the cusp of a lot of uh, biomedical advances that would, for example, possibly make some forms of cancer into chronic diseases. On the other hand, a darker story that is about really gaping inequities in the enjoyment of that, uh, of those Mm -hmm. conditions and access to care within countries and between countries. And those gaping inequities that in some cases are actually increasing instead of decreasing, to me, speak to injustices. Mm -hmm. But the mainstream public health community still deals with these questions in in quite a technocratic, vertical intervention type approach. So it seemed essential to bring in a justice, a social justice, and a human rights framework. The second reason I wanted to write the book in this way is that not very many people understand what the links between human rights and public health might be, and there aren't very many accessible materials about that. And again, I've written it in a way that I hope reaches students, people who are not familiar. I love it when friends tell me, oh, yeah, I took it with me when I got my hair done, or I mm. was right, reading it on the yeah. bus. Or, But the materials that are around on human rights-based approaches to health are often very formulaic, as though you could reduce human rights to a kind of app or something. And that is also it's sort of a, it's a pushback against that trend, too. Yeah, because we were just talking before we went on, and, and I mentioned that we had had one of the curators from the Museum of Human Rights in Winnipeg on last summer, and we, I, I talked with her about, 
you know, the concept of human rights and what constitutes human rights. So I, I'm just wondering for you then, you know, you, you mentioned that it's not this easily digestible thing that so many people want to do, like Bernie Sanders, for instance, says health is a human right, but doesn't really define what he would mean by human right. Uh, so for you, what, what does the term really come down to? I think when Bernie Sanders says health is a human right, which it is considered to be in many countries around the world, and the United States is an outlier on that, the idea is that health has something fundamental to do with human dignity, that it has some kind of special moral importance, that it's not just another market commodity to be mm-hmm. allocated by the price mechanism. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what, I mean, the book is about how patterns of health and ill health are determined by power relations and structures in society pathologies of power, as Paul Farmer uh, calls them, and and also about how dignity is somehow essential to our being humans and having life choices and plans. And a lot of the time in health and public health, we don't fully take that on board. And is it really come down to an issue then of equality? Because you mentioned that in this country where we're sitting, most of our listeners are in Canada, but here there's a, a notion that there's an inequality in health, and that's really what people like Bernie Sanders and even the, the president tried to get after. And it seems as though the difference then between a first world country and a third world country would be even worse than the, the divide domestically here. And is really that the issue that everyone as a human being really has the right to this to access the care necessary to survive to live. So health is partly about access to care, but it's also partly about what we call social determinants, so mm. education for example, mm. non-discrimination in the workforce, clean air, traffic laws, access to water and sanitation. Mm. I mean Flint, Michigan right. is a huge example of that. So it's about those broader things, and that's what I would call applying a human rights framework to health, seeing some of the connections between those broader things. And then there's a right to health, which may include some public health preconditions, but also health care. And yes, treating it as a right requires some basic equalizing of the playing field. It doesn't mean a right to be healthy. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to have the same outcome. It doesn't mean that if you're very rich and you want to pay for some extraordinarily expensive treatment, that should be denied to you. Um, But it does mean that by virtue of being humans and being members of a, a society or a community or a polity, we should all have some equal claim to concern and respect. So when you mention that it's it's much more vast than simply everyone having the ability to go to a hospital, it strikes me then that this is a, a larger societal shift than simply implementing health care laws, right? It, it requires a lot more commitment and by everybody to say pollution, right? And there's a lot of people who are reluctant to do this for economic reasons. So... Is it the case that by situating this within the realm of human rights, it's a way to 
more effectively communicate how important all these issues are and how intertwined everything is? I think it is. I mean, I think that people in public health already recognize the importance of social determinants. What human rights particularly adds is this understanding of accountability, of mechanisms and frameworks of accountability, so that people are active agents in making decisions about their lives and health, and they should be, they're entitled to make claims on Mm. the state and other private institutions and actors. And yeah, a lot of it is goes way beyond the health sector to sort of the social contract we have, which in many countries in Western Europe and in Canada are, have a far more developed social contract than we do in this country where we still are stuck in a kind of 19th century notion of the liberal state where everybody is assumed to be equal if the state will just leave them alone. Mm-hmm. And we know that's not true. Right. Well, so I, I went to a talk in the fall. Uh, and one of my favorite things about being here is just if you were so inclined, you could go to a talk all day, every day. And just it, it's really remarkable the, the scope of what's going on. But I went to this one because the basic premise was the, the faculty member – I believe he was from the Kennedy School, had written a book asking why are Americans so overweight and why do they pollute as much as they pollute. And one of the things that he argued in the talk and and in his book was that the United States is much more reactive to issues. They, They wait until something happens and then they want to prescribe something to fix it. They don't want to be proactive. So the issue of, you know, preventative health, or something like reducing pollution, and having that be a part of health doesn't really generate interest in the United States because it's preventative where the country wants to be reactive. Unless they see a problem, they don't feel as though they need to address it. It was his contention, and it struck me as as an outsider that seems like a legitimate claim. And you just made the the point that in Canada and, and a lot of Western Europe, the situation is so different than here, is that one possible reason is that in this country there's this culture of being reactive to issues and and a proactive stance doesn't get the same traction? I think there may be an element of that, but I think there's also an institutional design element. So in this country where we have health insurance that's tied to employment, You're employed with an employer for, you know, maybe five to ten years on average. There is absolutely no incentive for that health plan to do anything preventive. So people get to retirement age and they get to when they, they're on Medicare and then all of the chronic health problems start catching up to them. The mm-hmm. diet, the exercise, the smoking, the sedentary lifestyles hit when when the taxpayer is paying out of Medicare. Right. Whereas if you have a system like Canada's, which is sort of cradle-to-grave, thought systematically and planned, there's a very different attitude toward preventive health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you remember when Michael Bloomberg tried to ban the giant sodas and everyone made fun of him, and then, or Michelle Obama tries to talk about urban gardens and eating fruits and vegetables, and everyone talks about the nanny state. And like, don't, don't tell me what to do. But it is a collective issue, and I think that's the, the issue that I have with, I mean, I've been here for, what, six months, and 
I mean, not that Canada is this amazing utopia, but there there seems to be no collective. We all think so. Here. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, like it, it doesn't seem as though there's a collective mindset in the same way, and even little stupid things like walking down the street, people are less inclined to you know sort of shift over and make room for everybody. Like it's it's little things, and that individualistic mentality seems so ingrained that that's why those sorts of things wouldn't really have a lot of. Well, it's ingrained, but um, as with when whenever we're looking at other cultures and saying, "Oh well, I get this a lot in my work." Oh well, they don't believe in women's rights or women's equality, and you know, so that's somehow Western imposition of values. So, U.S. individualism and and cultural exceptionalism has some. I mean, the stereotype is based on something but it is also continually fed. What is happening now in our political process is, you know, the idea that government can't do anything for you and that everybody needs, it's better off if they're pulling themselves up by their bootstraps is a continually fed diet for people in this country. And that, you know, eventually sinks in and then we're we're reaping what has been sown for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, It's... The way we educate kids and and repeat some of those messages. Yeah, and it's everywhere too. It's I mean I'm teaching the pop culture course this semester, and that that narrative is in films, like Hollywood films, repeatedly. This individualistic look out for yourself. You know, you're the hero of your own story, sort of thing, and and that's the message. And I mean I would say we don't have the same messages in Canadian films which I think is true, but we also don't really have Canadian films, so it's, it's hard to, to really make that case. But then as it relates to, to human rights, I mean, one of the things that we're, we talk about now is things like the Zika virus or Ebola, which was a big, big issue, and it seemed as though there was this Western concern, not so much for the folks in Brazil or in Africa who were actually dealing with this, but the concern was, we have to not let it get back here. And that strikes me as, if, if we're talking about health as a human right, that those people in Africa or in Brazil have just as much right to care if they have the disease or to preventative measures to try and prevent the spread of the disease as people in the West. And yet the discussion doesn't get framed that way. And, and I'm, so I'm wondering for, for you as someone who's, who writes about public health, studies public health, is that frustrating to you or is it part of a colonial mindset or, or, is, or am I reading something wrong here? Well, I think, for example, with Zika, I, I think you're absolutely right that the concern is largely about health security. With Ebola, you could test for fever and stop people at the border. With mosquitoes, it's a little harder. And, of course, it's going to ruin a lot of spring vacations and the Olympics for people. But but if you take Zika, the public health... I mean, Zika outbreak is a reflection of chronic political failures in both health systems and beyond in those social determinants in in segregated housing where there's not water and Mm -hmm. piped water and sanitation and people collect water in open containers and the confluence of discrimination based on gender and poverty and sometimes race and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And the response 
translates those political failures for which governments should be accountable in a human rights framework into personal failures. So these poor women should be spraying their houses and not getting pregnant. Many of these women don't have control over their sexual lives. They don't have access to sustained, secure access to contraception. They don't have sexuality education. And they certainly, in many of these countries, don't have access to abortion in the event they were to get pregnant and be diagnosed with Zika. It is really, to me, very cynical. It's a cynical abdication of governmental responsibility. So that's sort of what a human rights framework does. Mm. It highlights, it visibilizes Mm. those spaces for accountability and how to reframe the dialogue and the claims. Mm -hmm. Whether the right to health is different here than it is in Nicaragua or West Africa, you know, I think... Even the civil rights, the right to fair and free elections is going to be different in Liberia than it Mm -hmm. is in Canada, for example. So is the right to health. That isn't to say that there's some rules of the game in terms of intellectual property and um, other kinds of trade issues and, and, um, and fiscal rules that really rig sort of the global economic order against poor countries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned that, you know, the role of the government in all this. Now, I, I'm wondering, by saying that it's a fundamental responsibility of the government, does that not alter, to a certain degree, a conception of what governments are for, particularly in a small or Republican country where the mindset is that the government is there to essentially do as little as, as possible. It's there for national defense and to organize commerce as necessary. And by saying that this their involvement in a health issue or to promote health, both in terms of preventative health and, and the social issues that go along with that, as well as health care, does that not redefine the role of government in a lot of places in the world? Yes, I think it potentially does. I mean, it certainly it, it certainly requires a vision of government that is a social democratic state uh, or a social state of laws, it's called in some countries in Latin America, where bringing up the people who are most impoverished or marginalized for different reasons is part of the government's role to let them live lives of dignity. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I actually think there's, I mean, in this country, for example, there's a lot of hypocrisy around that. We mm-hmm. have Republicans who are running on, we need a much smaller government. Well, you know, let's privatize religion instead mm-hmm. of privatizing health care right. and education. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and I love, there was, I think it was, I actually don't want to say the name because I can't remember, but there was a Republican senator who, when they did the government shutdown a few years ago, he went out to where I believe it was the Second World War monument, and there were a bunch of Second World War veterans who had flown up on one of those hero flights or, or whatever they're called from Florida. And there were a bunch of park rangers who said, oh, the monument's closed because the government shut down. And this Republican senator who voted for the shutdown went out and started yelling at these rangers, at these park rangers. And I thought to myself, that is insane, what you're doing. You voted to shut this thing down. Like, don't now grandstand. And it, it, it seems as though it's the same issue that they want, and it's not just Republicans in this country, there's, there's 
groups yes, all over the world. Yes, that's true. Um, who but they're feel, so easy to target. They really are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and but they because who, who feels that the government should have as little role in citizens' day to day life as humanly possible, except in religion. Right, or when something they don't right, like happens. Right, exactly. Right? Like, it, it's so, it's this really weird dynamic. And I'm wondering, do you have any sense as to why health is such a flashpoint for this? Um, you know, you mentioned religion is, is another one. But health also seems to be a major issue, a contentious issue, in a lot of places around the world. And, and given that, I think most people would agree that, you know, if you get cancer, you probably should be able to get care for that yet we still have this mind there's still this debate over health well i think um there's still at multiple levels and it's not just in this country you're right an idea health uh, talking about health and rights terms questions what is natural Mm. and what is not the kind of the boundaries between what is caused by the way society is arranged and what is caused by divine will you know an Mm. act of god and I think we still very much have this attitude about health as and and and, and disease as punishment for sin for transgression. Mm. You hear it constantly in um, my work on maternal mortality in the global south. Oh, it was God's will that this woman died because you know that she bled out or had an excruciating death and protracted labor because she you know had committed infidelity or she had done this or so there's a lot of that and and that's in this country too and very mu- it's a little bit different because the messages are about well you need to you know be eating no trans fats and you need to be doing this to exercise and mm. you need to be keeping your you know and all of those things and if you're not doing those and doing everything that the media messages say well, you know, if you get sick, then it's sort of your own fault. Um, right, right. I remember there was a, a, a golf event. That they let these amateurs play the U.S. Open course, I think the Monday before the U.S. Open, to see if any of them could break 100. And I think there were three celebrities and one uh, other person. This other person had lung cancer. And they turned this into like an hour-long TV show. And the guy was, you know, like a 20 handicap, and they picked him. And repeatedly on the show... They said lung cancer, but he never like he never smoked. Like they reminded the viewers that it wasn't this self inflicted right. form of lung cancer. Right, so he's which, not undeserving. Right, which totally puts a value on the type of cancer that he has, yep. which really I thought was so strange. If the person had lung cancer from smoking, are they less worthy of our sympathy? Like this strikes me as one of these issues that you probably confront a lot. The and as you're talking about the valuation of health, which which seems so backwards when we think about if we're trying to frame well, health you, as a if, human right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you have a view of health and health care simply as something that should be set by the price mechanism, then you want to create incentives and at the margins, people, you know, neoliberalist economists like um, Richard Epstein have argued that at the margins you might be affecting behavior with a right to health care. So, you know, people who might not eat so many big uh, whoppers or french fries might do so and then they might get diabetes if they Mm. know they're always going to be getting free dialysis (laughs) or 
so that is the, that's you can't think in that way. I mean, rights don't need to be earned. Mm-hmm. So if you have a right to health care, it goes along with education about nutrition and access to fruits and vegetables and places to exercise and move around in. But it it can't be something that people need to deserve. Right, right, and. You know, at the same time, it goes along. I'll go back to this talk in the, in the fall. Professor, he said he had gone to, to Congress and testified in front of Congress as to different ways to improve health. And one of the things he said was that for food stamps, they should make a program where you can only buy f- uh, certain types of foods with food stamps approved as healthy choices. And he said when he got back from testifying, there was a bunch of email calls, letters from low-income individuals, particularly minority low-income individuals, saying, like, don't, you can't tell us what to do. This is a, a white man telling Congress how uh, Hispanic, African-American, low-income communities should live. And that's how it was interpreted in those communities. And they said that that's not a right for you to do that. And it was almost situated that for them, the right that they were really concerned about was that right of choice and that freedom of choice, which, you know, goes maybe against the health stuff. Because when they, if they choose to eat all this stuff and do get diabetes, they might not have the access to the health. So it's almost two rights in conflict with each other? Not really, because, you know, I, I agree with them. I mean, we wouldn't, as you've pointed out, we wouldn't dare tell rich people, oh, you can't spend your money on Johnny Walker Blue right. or whatever, this and that. It's it's that those, we have terrible food and drug policy in this country, terrible regulation of food. Um, people live in segregated neighborhoods where they don't have access to parks. I mean, I don't know if you've gone around some of the neighborhoods in Boston, but, you know, there are not a lot of green spaces in Roxbury or Washington Heights in Manhattan or, I mean, there's not a lot of places to go out and get exercise or, or outlets for that. And so all of these upstream factors are, oh, we have to take those for granted. And the only way to get them to improve is to impose even more restrictions on their choice mm-hmm. down at the, you know, at the point of giving them food stamps or conditional cash transfers, basically. Right, right. But that's not a case in which we could see government involvement as promoting this human right. Um, no, I would say gov- if government involvement wants to promote the human right, then they should do something about nutrition education, you mm-hmm. know, et cetera, you know. Right, right. Or, say, not cut phys ed. Right. For instance. Yeah. Um, which is remarkable. I mean, I live, I grew up in Canada. I went to school in Canada. I had the option to stop taking phys ed after ninth grade. And I took that option, which was weird because then all day, every day, you're just sitting around, which is so strange and and so almost counter to what, education should be. It should be well-rounded. And it goes along. We had a a major debate in Ontario over the past year over sex education. The government wanted to implement a new sex education curriculum, which they did, uh, I believe, that started younger than the old one. And the government's argument was, this is valuable information. It will help kids growing up to... And it wasn't, from what I read, it wasn't overly sexualized. It was, you know, telling first graders the proper names 
like anatomical names of body parts, sort of thing, and, and letting them know, you know, how to tell or what to do if someone touches them inappropriately, these sorts of things. And the response from a lot of, the, a lot of people in the public was, this isn't the government's role. This is the parent's role. I don't want my kids learning this from a teacher. I want them learning it from me, which in a sense is reasonable. I can understand why parents would feel that way. But at the same time, we know that a lot of parents aren't having those discussions. And, and that is another public health issue that forget about, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, teenage pregnancy, those sorts of things. If something happens to a kid, they have to be given the proper form or the understanding to know how to express that and tell people what's going on. And this notion of individual rights of the parent, in that case, to me, it's trumped by the collective good and what's best for the child. But So I don't know. It would... Would my reading of that fit in with the human rights framework? Absolutely. I mean, human rights used to be, and still to some extent by some people, be really limited to rights that happen in the public sphere. So, you know, a police officer that commits an abuse or something. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, we've come to recognize that, you know, at least for women and children, what happens behind closed doors in private settings in their homes really, really matters. And so the state has an obligation to protect more vulnerable members of society from abuses by other members of society, whether that's saying, you know, a private company can't pollute your water source or whether mm-hmm. that's saying a, a teacher or father or uncle or other person can't abuse a child. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I guess the, the one issue that could come up or, or that we, we sort of touched on a little bit, I mean, we have the book right here and there's a, on the cover there's a, a photo of a smiling child. Where, where is this pit photo taken? Uh, Lesotho, Tanzania. Okay, so and, and the kid is clearly very happy. Uh, well, so the story behind the photo is that we were actually there. I was there with my family, and I have two teenage kids, and they were sharing some candy with a bunch of Tanzanian okay. kids. So all of them were smiling, without <laughs> exception. Now the the issue, though, you know, just the the the, the racial composition of the, of the photo leads one to wonder about issues of colonialism and the notion of you know, white Western countries going into non-white non-Western countries and placing values a Western value system on them and the colonial idea and the colonial mentality that goes along with that is that a danger of people in the West promoting this version or this vision of a human rights framework, or is it universal enough that that isn't really a concern? So I talk about this a lot in the book. I think that the concept of human dignity, the concept that I need to treat myself with dignity because I have life plans and I am not just a means to an end but an end, also means that I treat you with dignity, that you're not just an instrument to achieve my ends. I think that concept is universal, and you see it across 
religions. You see it, and I talk about this quite a lot in the book, across African cultures, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, uh, some kinds of, some variants of Judaism. I think the way in which that plays out is quite culturally and contextually contingent. Mm. And I also discuss that. I think we create our identities through our relationships, and it's very embedded. But I don't think that that means... It's it's the way human rights has often been interpreted or applied in an extremely Western, as though we're sort of autonomous beings um, coming out of a very Western philosophical tradition that can seem, and, and rigidly so, and not understanding the, the context in which we're operating, that it can seem a Western imposition. Mm-hmm. If it's more about negotiating social practices and power relationships and allowing people within their relationships, within their communities, to exercise some dignity, I think it's not an imposition. And I have worked in many cultures in Latin America, South Asia, across Africa, where there are different versions of this that have been expressed to me, and I've seen how it's come up. So it's really almost an issue where the people in a place from a place who are coming at this from a place of privilege really need to listen, right, and and understand where everyone is coming from because generally speaking it's going to be the the privileged people going to the to these communities that may not have access to certain things and so it's really trying to understand their reality and how that's often that's that's often the case but i think when we in the west say their culture doesn't accept this or that Mm -hmm. well the it's the people of privilege and often men who yeah. are defining what the culture is and cultures are just not monolithic they're not static so when you've gone and, and you say this, this photo in Tanzania when you've gone around the world have you run into any resistance from people who, you, who you've met who view this as an imposition uh, has, has that been a challenge at any point? Oh of course I mean there are lots of times where people have have said, um, oh, those are Western values, or oh, our women don't believe in that, or, um, and again, I think that they speak for a certain sector of the population, and there's also the way you respond, and I, in mo- in much of this book and in much of my work, I've actually lived places. So I was mm-hmm. living in Tanzania for three and a half years. I've lived in Latin America. I am half South American. So I think that also helps with not just coming in, you know, and landing from another planet from Harvard, right. but actually working with groups who are already working on these issues on their terms. Mm-hmm. So it's really a matter of supporting the people who are who are there and who are working the same yeah. the same way that you know I mean I come into the Canada like this is a terrible parallel but I come into the Canada program at Harvard I'm not there to redefine what it is I'm there to help what's already happening and to sort of situate myself right. in what's happening right. there right I'm not some sort of mercenary sent to that's exactly right, right. 
Yeah. And yeah. I, I see myself doing the same thing. I've done a lot of work in South Texas. You know, it's in the same country, but it's a very, very different reality right. and world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and really, you mentioned this, that the term dignity would mean different things to different people, too, right? When you're talking about the struggle for dignity, I mean, I do things that... I'm sure there are people, you know, on Madison Avenue in New York who would think aren't dignified, right? And sort of thing. I mean, that's a, a, a sort of a bad example. But, you know, the, the term dignity would mean different things to different people. And understanding that and how... It, yeah, right? I, I think um, the I, I set out the idea that the, at this core level, dignity means acknowledging that we are subjects of our own lives and mm-hmm. we have certain agency and can make choices. And I give an example at the beginning of the book about how torture is sort of the quintessential violation of human rights because it extinguishes that possibility. Mm-hmm. It's the ultimate example of treating another human being as a means to an end, to extract information or punish but there are lots of other ways that we deny people dignity, whether we're paying them wages that are not livable, whether we are using or sexually exploiting children and not even letting them grow up to think of themselves as full subjects. Mm-hmm. So the book explores some of that, too. Mm. So it's, it's almost, it sounds to me like it comes down, in certain cases, to agency and recognizing everyone's agency. Yeah, it absolutely does. Mm-hmm. So the book is structured uh, that you you talk about these broad issues, but there are also some case studies uh, included in the book. And you mentioned you lived in various places around the world. Are so are these case studies based on your lived experiences? Yes, they all are. Mm. So it, it's a very personal book. I mean, the mm. the very first sentence of the introduction is: "Before I had my two kids, I had a miscarriage." Okay. And I talk about that which wasn't a big medical deal in New York where I was living at the time. But then I, the following week, I end up going to Chiapas in southern Mexico and in a camp for internally displaced persons. I meet a woman who is miscarrying, hemorrhaging at just the same stage of pregnancy as I was. And from that event and and making sure she gets medical attention, and I talk about you know, how we think about our own suffering and the suffering of others. Hmm. And so it's weaving together constantly my own story, the stories that I've heard over 20-some-odd years of doing this work, and then trying to connect them to theories. Right. Now, you met, you mentioned the, the case in Mexico there. That sounds like a pretty powerful uh, experience and a powerful example. But are, are there any others that really stand out to you as being particularly... Well, I hope all of them oh, are yeah. powerful. <laughs> I know, but I I try to give examples both that are, I mean, some of them are tragic. I've worked a lot on maternal mortality, so there are many stories of women dying and some stories of children dying. But there are also stories of, you know, an indigenous woman in Peru appropriating enough of a sense of herself and her agency to stand up and, and, mm-hmm. and talk back to a European-descended doctor and, um, you know, what that kind of appropriation of rights means beyond mm-hmm. even just improving access to health care in that particular setting or about what a former student was able to do during the Ebola crisis in mm-hmm. Liberia you know, so I try to also give examples of how 
using these frameworks in different places has really meant something to people. So by personalizing it then, it's a way for you to maybe show how these these broader ideas aren't purely theoretical. Because that's one of the issues that I think academics run into a lot, is that they present all these theoretical things, but there's no practical explanation of how it actually works. But so, so one of the goals with this book by personalizing then would be to show very much so. Absolutely. And is if I'm someone who buys the book, reads the book, are these the sorts of things then that I could implement in my own life and my own way of thinking and, and trying Absolutely. to support, right? That's the goal. Yeah. And because one of the issues say in Canada, you know, we have a lot of reserves that don't have access to water, say and, and there are a lot of First Nations communities and northern communities where suicide is a huge issue. And so these are the sorts of, of ideas that can help us think about these in a new way, perhaps. Yeah, and think about designing programs that in really involve meaningful participation mm-hmm. by First Nations. Think about different kinds of advocacy or legal strategies. I mean, there are different sorts of examples. Budget work grassroots social mobilization, litigation, policymaking. So I hope it does give a sense of, mm-hmm. oh, this worked in this place right. and we could take this. Right. And, and really, it's, it's almost, to me, too, also, you, you've mentioned this, getting away from the commodification of people and these ideas, right? Like, it's, okay, it's Michael Moore, but, I mean, he talks in one of his movies about how there's companies that have life insurance on their employees and some of them are upset that their employees don't die regularly enough like that is so awful and it's the commodification of people and lives and if we can get away from the commodification of it that's a huge step in the process it would that would mean tectonic shifts (laughs) in the way policy is made you know is that possible uh i think it's possible not all at once. Right. Uh, I mean, this isn't a magic bullet. It's not right. a manual. It's not a magic bullet. But I think it's it's possible to fight back against mm-hmm. that trend. Mm-hmm. And it's really important, given the political climate in this country at the moment, and depending on what happens in the fall. It's interesting. We're recording this on Friday, and we're posting it Wednesday, so five days from now. In the interim, though, there are major primaries in, in, I believe the Democrats also vote in these states, but Florida and Ohio, which are going to be major determinants in the process for who is nominated for the presidency. And depending on who that is, there could be uh, some major issues at play. Um, there will definitely be major yes. issues at play. <laughs> yes. My class loves to talk about this uh, each week. And a lot of it does come down to, to, to health and this notion of health because depending on who wins, a lot of change, social changes, uh, legal changes will impact health uh, and, and these ideas. So it's, it's an important book and, and we would encourage everybody to go find it. It is Power, Suffering, and the Struggle for Dignity, Human Rights Frameworks for Health and Why They Matter, University of Pennsylvania Press. There's also a foreword by Paul Farmer that is included in the book. And it's just out. It's a 2016 release. This, I believe, is the first episode we're doing with the 2016 released book. So, and I'm it's flattered. March. So, uh, very exciting. So, Alicia Yeaman, thank you so much for doing this. 
Thank you. My pleasure. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, it's historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shani Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.